Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. So part of the work of the scholar and the journalist and the lawyer and, and, you know, the public in general is to, in our professional capacity, to make sure that the public has a clearly articulated vision of what is factually happening on the ground and being radically transparent about what those facts are. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. At Life of the Law, we're going to shake things up a bit so our team can jump into the conversation that's taking place around the country about the law to ask questions and get some answers. We want to welcome you to In Studio. Each month, we'll produce and publish one investigative report about the law and our lives. Two weeks later, our team will meet up in the studios of KQED in San Francisco, like we are today, to talk about that investigation, the law in the news, the law on our minds, and to share some notes about our upcoming investigative report. I'd like to introduce our team. First, Brittany Botorf. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Brittany. I'm an attorney here in San Francisco. And I am also the chair of the advisory board for Life of the Law. Thank you. And next up is Asagi Obasagi. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm also on the advisory board for Life of the Law, and I am a professor of bioethics at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Joint Medical Program and School of Public Health. Thank you for joining us. And Tony Gannon. Hey, Nancy. I am a podcast producer, uh, your podcast producer, sometimes sound engineer and filmmaker. And in our upcoming conversations, we'll be joined by Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel, who is our post-production editor. We'll also be having guests in the studio for our in-studio conversations. So we all look forward to the conversations we're going to be having in months to come. Let's talk first about legal scholars and the role they play in our society. We just published the stories of five scholars, Tom Keck, Tanya Brito, Karamet Ryder, Jody Quas and Ryan King, scholars whose research was funded by the National Science Foundation. You can hear their stories on our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and on iTunes. But the question is, what role do scholars play in our society? Donald Trump's election was seen as a repudiation of the intellectual, and now a group of very prominent legal scholars are reportedly going to file a lawsuit in federal court charging President Trump with violating the Constitution. They're asking the federal court to issue a declaratory judgment defining elements of the clause, specifically issuing a judgment that Trump's business interests do or will violate the clause and asking for an injunction barring Trump from violating that clause in the future. I thought scholars did research. Now it looks like scholars are actively going to litigate in the court to protect the Constitution that they research. So I'd like to ask you all, what do you think is the role of scholars? You've just listened to the five scholars funded by the NSF tell their stories for a live law event for Life of the Law. What came, what did you get from those, those, those stories? And what role do you think scholars are supposed to play in this society? Osagi. I think like most things in life, the the answer is a bit more complicated uh, than the question seems on the surface. So it's actually quite an active debate within the um, scholarly community, uh, particularly among social scientists in terms of what role they should play. I think for social scientists, the traditional role has been one who um, collects data and analyzes data and pre- presents fighting, findings but then leaves any other type of advocacy to other people, and they reserve some level of detachment from the political process. But for legal scholars, uh, historically, 
they've been more comfortable making more normative claims about what one should do in the world and have been more actively engaged in those conversations. And so I think one thing that has been emerging has been, you know, particularly as the times change and as social science scholarship becomes more relevant or at least perceived as more relevant to legal questions, there has been a general um, sense that perhaps social scientists themselves should become um, stronger actors in this political process. And some folks feel comfortable with that and are excited about it. Other folks are quite hesitant. To me, at a time when federal funding for National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowments for the Arts, like has come into question, like literally over the weekend, I think I saw some articles about the sort of movement toward privatization of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This challenge to me seems at the very least legally like symbolic in a lot of ways. Um, something that struck me over the weekend was that there, there were a group of scientists that were making moves to sort of preserve uh, the data that they collected on climate science. Um, and so the role of scholars that I'm interested in um, during this sort of time of transition or if you, or whatever we want to call it um, is really interesting. I mean, it's obvious that people have this sort of alarm and panic. The National Science Foundation funds the research of scholars all over the country. So what role are these scholars supposed to play once they have that research? Are they supposed to just put it in a journal and hope that other scholars read it and then it filters down or trickles down to the general populace? Or are scholars supposed to play an active role? Play an active role. I don't really believe that there is such thing as objectivity in journalism. <laughs> That's sort of a broader philosophical sort of uh, Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually believe, and similarly, I, t I tend to believe that uh, scholars should play something of an, a more active role. I mean, an activist role, if you will, being active about legislation um, that they, they feel is important for them to enact, as long as there's transparency. You don't believe that journalism can truly be objective because the individual, I assume, is bringing their own perspectives. Does that mean that scholars and journalists are incapable of actually holding an independent perspective aside from their professional work? Well, I think part of what you're asking is a bigger question of what it does it mean to be a professional? I think a professional regarding you know whatever field they're working in has to be able to engage in their work without necessarily allowing bias to come in or at least being able to acknowledge that bias and being transparent about it. And I think that's true if you're a physician, if you're a lawyer, if you're a scholar, if you are a journalist. Um, part of being a professional is being able to approach one's work with a level of, of, of um, I don't want to say objectivity, but just a, a sense of professionalism about how you do your work and what's expected of you. And this raises questions of journalism, journalism ethics and professional ethics and, you know, other types of, of questions. For me, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to think about this. You know, one way to think about this is that, you know, by choosing to choosing not to participate in a political process is in and of itself a political choice. Um, so some people feel that, um, you know, uh, any type of research and how it's disseminated, you're already engaged in some level of, of politics and therefore you can't really sidestep it. Um, I tend to take a different view. My view is that it, it's not an either or type of situation. Rather, it's a spectrum. So the way, you know, I, I think about my work is I I, I like to think that I approach my scholarship with the highest integrity and rigor. And um, and for me, it's important not only to do that scholarly work, but to make sure that my work is accessible. So I try to make sure that my work is not only accessible to my peers in terms of scholarly journals and peer review articles, but also accessible um, by participating in podcasts such as this, by writing op-eds, um, by writing uh, magazine articles, um, so that a broader public can have access to that work. Um, so that what that means is that uh, hopefully my research that is uh, 
that is scholarly in nature can also um, shape how folks outside of my field might think about an issue or might inform a policymaker's uh, decision making. And so therefore, you know, they will have access to it and know about it and it may inform some type of broader public debate. Um, so it's not necessarily me kind of um, um, actively advocating a, a point based upon research, but but just making sure that my work is accessible to the widest group of people possible and then letting that inform their their choices. I think that Asagi makes a really good point, and I agree that it's so important in terms of what happens to the data. Um, and, and the choices made are choices, either to more actively advocate for for change by whatever avenue you distribute your data. And I think it raises the question of when public funds, say from the National Science Foundation, are used to create data, what obligations does that professor have in distributing the data? Does it just go in the the kind of silo of academia research and those magazines and books that nobody else really reads or accesses? Or is there a even a bigger responsibility to get that data in front of the public at large and in front of legislators who are making decisions, um, impacting lives, and using data for informed policy changes and legislation. I thought two of these stories in particular really kind of reached that point. And one was Tanya Britos, um, the professor from Wisconsin who uh, did the research about people's engagement with the legal system and all the challenges she and her team had just to get into those courtrooms. I believe they were family law situations. And, you know, to me, that seemed like such important information for lawmakers to have to know about access to justice that are being impaired at every level on, on such a just a baseline. So she did this podcast, which is great. So now that's kind of more in the general public, but it's still a fairly narrow ream of publicity. And so how do you get that in front of people who can make substantive changes to inform the people who are literally guarding those courthouses to letting the people in who have the right to access those courtrooms? I don't. I don't know the answer to that, but I. I think that you know this is a worthy discussion. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, Brittany. To me, the the problem is not so much the choice for scholars to um, use their work for advocacy or not, or what role they should play. For me, from my perspective uh, as being a professor, the bigger problem is scholars actively choosing to keep their work out of the public discourse. So, for example, you know, depending on what department you're in or what field you're in, you know, some people think that, you know, writing an op-ed based upon your research is a affirmatively bad thing for one to do for their career. They feel that, you know, your scholarly contribution should be with one's peers, and that's where your conversation should be, and to, to, to in a sense, uh, quote-unquote, dumb down your research in, for a thousand-word op-ed in the public eye is uh, not something that a dignified scholar would do. And to me, that is a significant problem for, on a, for a lot of different reasons, and we can have an entire separate podcast on that, but, um, for the, but it's... The main one is for the reason I said before, that is that, you know, as scholars, we are privileged to be able to have the time and resources to study social problems. And if we have an opportunity to, to contribute and to bring greater clarity to an issue um, or to um, highlight an issue that people are not talking about, then we there is almost a moral, moral responsibility to do that. So, for example, as Brittany pointed out, Tanya Brito's work is really showing how access to the courts is being stymied at multiple levels. And that might be something that, you know, uh, people aren't aware of and may care about. And listening 
to um, Tanya's work on this podcast or reading some of her work that becomes accessible to the broader public may very well have, um, you know, parts of our legal system or people or various actors in our legal system to rethink the various procedures that, um, unfortunately, um, keep people from having full access to the courts. And that's critical and key and, um, again, something that we should be, we scholars should be part of the conversation and not detach themselves from it. I think somewhere in this discussion is uh, this sort of branching out from a very specific uh, audience that scholars try to reach uh, to branching out to mainstream audiences and what happens in that sort of transition, that transformation of the facts. Um, And in this time where it's very sort of weird, it's sort of like this thing we're living under now, we're in the post-fact era where... when you do that, like, does do you expose yourself to the possibility of, you know, dumbing it down, so to speak, to the point where you're not really um, saying the thing that you had intended to, or you know, basically your 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 research is so nuanced in a way that you know to break it down into like a very manageable uh, headline, you do it a disservice. Um, and I'm not sure where this falls in the discussion, but I think somewhere in there is like this discussion about uh, living in a post-fact era. I think that's right. You know, we're you know we're three weeks into 2017, and we ha- already have a candidate for phrase of the year. And it's this whole idea of alternative facts mm-hmm. that was presented to us over the weekend, <laughs> and you know that's a contradiction in terms. You know, such so like jumbo shrimp. You know, it's something that is. Um, um, it, it's a it's a strange way for a communications director of, a, of the Oval Office to think about um, the president's engagement with the world and the way the president communicates certain ideas, um, but. Uh, you know, this idea that there are multiple sets of facts out there that different constituencies can engage is an affront to the very, um, you know, decency and common sense of the public. And so um, so part of the work of the scholar and the journalist and the lawyer and, and, you know, the public in general is to, in our professional capacity, to make sure that the public has a clearly articulated vision of what is factually happening on the ground and being radically transparent about what those facts are and allowing the public to decide um, whether or not it's credible or not, um, rather than trying to have some type of multiplicity of facts, like a smorgasbord, and letting folks choose the one that they find more attractive. Um, and I think that's really the challenge um, for us going forward. What is the risk? You say that some scholars actually hold back. They, they don't support public dissemination of their work that hasn't gone through peer review, and I'm not saying all scholarly work shouldn't go through peer review, but that process of peer review and then it being published in a scholarly journal, but then not really promoting your work out in the public discourse. Why is that? What is the risk? Well, I think it comes from a different, couple different places. Um, you know, historically, the idea was that if your ideas were good enough, the market would let them float to the top. Not the market, economic market, but like the market of ideas would allow those good ideas to float to the top, and they'll they'll be picked up on their own merits. Um, I think another idea is that you know scholars have had a uh, have often want to have a firewall between the idea of scholarship versus journalism, mm-hmm. saying that they are two separate entities and never shall they come together. Um, you know, life of law is challenging that idea a little bit, <laughs> um, and it's just the idea that um, scholars do dispassionate. Uh, collection and analysis of data, they don't advocate ideas, and that's another firewall that some scholars have been, you know, very hesitant to to um, to take down. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this just comes from historical norms over time of how certain fields are organized. And again, some fields have been more um, 
more deferential to these tr- traditional norms than others. And so uh, this isn't a blanket statement, but rather to say that, you know, depending upon what field one is in, one may feel differently about making one's work publicly accessible. So it seems that the scholars with this organization crew that are filing this lawsuit in federal court, they're taking a very public position. I mean, we have Lawrence Tribe from Harvard, Norman Eisen, uh, an Obama administration ethics lawyer, Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the law school at UC Irvine, Richard Painter, an ethics counsel in the administration of George Bush. I mean, these are top legal scholars in the United States, and yet they've formed this organization. And um, they're, I mean, I think, isn't that the direct contradiction of not being a public scholar? Mm-hmm. They're actually taking on the president of the United States. Yes, and I think legal scholars um, have been um, much more open to the idea of engaging these public conversations in part because of being professionalized as lawyers, as as advocates. There has not been such a um, distinction made between one's research as a legal scholar versus one's advocacy. And, and some would argue, in fact, that as a legal scholar, you're often encouraged to let your research um, translate into these type of public engagements. I think um, when you look at other kind of uh, non-professional fields, such as the social sciences or humanities, that's where there has been, in some some subfields, more pushback. But I think now is an important time for scholars beyond just the legal field to step up and to help confront this world we live in of alternative facts in the post-truth world. Um, and one of the things that Karamet Ryder's story prompted for me, and she's the UC Irvine professor who looked at the impact of prison and punishment on individuals, communities, and legal systems. And she had a whole bunch of data about um, when prisoners are transitioned directly from solitary back onto the street and you know how difficult that transition can be. And it, it for me, raised the memory of the Willie Horton phenomenon which was back in 1988, and how that media blitz campaign of that one individual who was released on a weekend furlough program that was in place then um, for Massachusetts, how he went, he didn't go back to prison like he was supposed to, and he ended up doing some crimes while he was out, including um, rape and assault and armed robbery. And that was so highly publicized. And the... um, scholars, including the Marshall Project, has measured the impact of just that one kind of blow up and how it for decades increased prison building projects, longer sentences and tough on crime one upmanship legislation by elected officials. And part of that was because there was a dearth of actual data about what really is going on in the furlough system and what really is going on in um, the this prison um, crime and rehabilitation statistics. And so that was in 88. We, we are so far from the, the you know, decorum of facts and uh, reporting of 1988 that I, I think now is so important because a Willie Horton could happen pretty much every day if we're not careful and we don't, we don't have proper safeguards in place. Full disclosure, Life of the Law is funded by the National Science Foundation. We received $99,175 for two years, 
And it's a unique uh, grant because what we proposed to the National Science Foundation Law and Social Division of Law and Social Sciences was to work in partnership with scholars who have done research to disseminate that research, which is it was an extraordinarily difficult grant to receive because it was for a research program, but we don't do the research, but they saw the value of disseminating uh, the research that had been conducted and to work in partnership with Life of the Law as as a journalist organization with a panel of scholars. So Life of the Law is doing this bridging. Um, we, we see that value of scholarship that is out there, but I also feel that you know, the, and as Tony, you brought up, the NEH is now at threat of losing funding. And I'm, I have, you know, fairly strong suspicion that the National Science Foundation could potentially be at threat of losing uh, some of its funding. I know in 2016, they were funded, uh, they had seven and a half billion dollars in funding. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a, a, a concern by scholars, and now even journalists, that are funded by the NSF or other uh, federal, federally funded organizations like the NEH and the NSF to just kind of hold back, to not show like what the work that you're truly doing at risk of being identified as uh, an advocate rather than a journalist or a scholar. Do you think that's a, a realistic concern? I, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the chilling effect that, that can occur when um, – Certain federal funding agencies feel as if what some may call the over-politicization of everyday life allows a scholar's basic research into simple social dynamics may be viewed as a, a political attempt that may go against uh, an administration's current ideals and, and desires. And um, I think we it's a fair concern for funding agencies um, to, to be aware of and to not want to lose large amounts of funding abilities um, because of this perception in current climate. How do you protect from that? Great question. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure there are conversations happening right now internally, um, but it, it's a concern. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this last weekend. So we have an inauguration um, by President Trump, and then we have the following day a, a, a worldwide demonstration. And then we have something as basic as uh, the number of people who attended demonstrations versus inauguration, and there's a break in what is fact. So how do we even, as a society, as a world society, how do we even move forward as journalists and scholars with a world that there's an argument over something as basic as the number of people who attended something that everyone can see. And, and in fact, how do we, you know, bridge that conversation of, um, that, was, that took place at the demonstrations um, and bring that into something larger that we're all on the same page? How do we do this? I, I, I was at a lunch yesterday, and a family law attorney was there, and she said that the country right now reminds her of a really bad divorce writ large. 
And we were talking about like how, you know, the truthiness and how one side just has their set of facts and the other side has their set of facts and you just can't do anything to get both sides to agree on the facts. And she said, honey, that happens to me every day in court. That is every single divorce that I've ever handled. You know, husband comes in and this is his version of what happened in the marriage. Wife comes in and it's a whole nother story. And you they you might as well think they weren't married to each other, but in fact they were. And and so kind of it falls a lot of times to the court, a judge, a jury to sit down, figure out, judge who's telling the truth, judge which facts are right based on the evidence. And she said, this is what's happening, but just really big. And and the sides are really big. It's, you know, Obama's one party and tr- Trump's the other, and they're getting divorced. But we're supposed to be having a honeymoon right now. Oh, honeymoon's over. <laughs> What honeymoon we did? That was a that was that trip to Las Vegas. I think we all took a trip to, and it didn't even we didn't even get there. But but I think fundamentally her point is like it's on a macro level and a micro level. And so on the micro level, there's always alternative facts. And I I've seen this as an attorney, and I'll depose witnesses who witnessed the exact same incident or accident. And they have such different versions of what happened. And oftentimes, I don't think either one of them's lying. It's just their memory and what they bring to their memory and how their life experiences affect their memory. And I think we're seeing that just in a play out in such a more uh, prominent space. And, and so, like, my dad told me that three million people didn't really vote for Hillary. But he, I mean, he's a Ph.D., electrical engineer, super smart person, but whatever his life experiences are, it just impacts how he sees uh, reality different from me. So, but but then when you have a divorce, I mean, ultimately, you know, you're both sitting there with your attorneys. There's two different, vastly different stories. But in the end, somebody somewhere in a court is going mm-hmm. to say, you're right, and you're going to get this, and that's it. We don't have that. I mean, we have a Supreme Court. We have federal courts. But, I mean, even right now, just whether or not these legal scholars who are challenging um, whether or not the the Constitution has been violated uh, by Donald Trump, I mean, even that, do they have standing? Do they, as legal scholars in the United States, have legal standing to file a lawsuit? And if they don't, who does? Well, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think the the answer to that question is that the court of public opinion will be the final um, mm. decider. So, um, you know, it sounds odd to say this, but, you know, we have midterm elections coming up in 2018. That's not that far away. And the, the next, uh, you know, year and a half or two years between now and those midterm elections will be the pronouncement of whether or not um, one side or the other has been more persuasive in its presentation of of various facts, and the people will decide. That's the beauty of our democracy. So, you know, in many ways, you know, this question of how we understand various factual standpoints and who gets to decide, I think it's uniquely situated for social scientists to engage. You know, for example, this question of how many people attended a rally. you know, there are crowd. There are people called "quote unquote" crowd scientists out there who have a certain methodology um, to determine how many people are in a certain space, right? And so that's this goes back to what I said earlier in terms of this is a moment for radical transparency in our methods as a way to persuade people of the value of the social sciences to these various legal and political 
uh, conversations. And when you have these various facts on the ground that people are disputing, uh, a dispassionate social scientist can say, look, this is what I did. This is why I did it. These are my methods and these are my conclusions. And we can have a conversation about whether or not those methods are appropriate or not, or whether or not they're accurate, as opposed to um, simply uh, in having individuals choose a set of facts that aligns with their preconceived thoughts. Um, and so that, and that's the middle ground that I think social scientists can play, that is offering their skills to answer questions such as this so that people can make more informed choices about how they view the world. I'd like to believe that social scientists can play that role, but un it's unfortunate, but we have the situation where immediately after the inauguration and then Sean Spicer came out and made his statement that this was the most- The press secretary the, for the- Sean, Yeah, Sean Spicer, the press secretary for the Trump administration. First he says, first he says that there's no way of keeping track, there's, there's no way of knowing what number of people attended because the Park Service d doesn't keep track of of who, you know, the numbers. Um but then he goes on to say that this was the most widely attended and widely viewed inauguration, period, right? So my point being that so every single social scientist can come out and then say, no, actually, we know for a fact that this, you know, this, that what you said was is wrong. But they're never going to agree with the social scientists. <laughs> like, we're in the situation where going based off of what we've seen so far and based off what happened over the weekend, they're going to have their own set of facts. And that's why I'm also kind of hesitant to agree with that it's it's all about the, the court of public opinion because the court of public opinion can be very wrong <laughs> in a lot of cases. Um, so in, in my mind, and this is going to sound maybe a little, I, I don't know, almost tippy-dippy, but it's almost about maintaining sort of a consciousness of where our emotional uh, energy is placed um, because this sort of battle between the Trump administration and the media is ultimately distracting us from something that I'm not entirely sure of right now, um, something that we should be kind of probably have more eyes on. Um, and that it's really about keeping fo focus, keeping sort of consciousness of where our attention is, and in particular, our emotional energy. Yeah, and I think I want to just kind of reiterate something that Brittany said earlier, that, which is, you know, this is not new. And this idea of having multiple facts on the ground is something that humans have dealt with for, some would argue, thousands of years. And um, we've been able to, you know, for the most, I shouldn't say for the most part, but we've been able to navigate tough decisions and who's telling the truth and what's not truthful. Um, and, and you know, we've been able to, to deal with those questions before. Now, this may be occurring now at a level and in a space that we haven't seen before, but our human capacity to engage with one another and to figure out what is the best way to move forward, that's something that we've, that we, that's a capacity that we have. And so I think part of this conversation is, um, you know, focusing on the processes that allow us to make good decisions and w what professions and what um, groups and individuals and organizations can contribute to that conversation is going to be key. As what we role does the law play in our society? We have a constitution, we have federal law, we have state law. What role does the imposition of law play in a, a country that's struggling with fact, with truth. Who actually determines when the president of the United States or the news is telling the truth? Is there a law that, I mean, I don't know. How does that work? Well, for the example of the inauguration numbers, there's not really a law at play. There's no harm. There's no one who can sue to say Trump libeled or slandered them. But in other contexts, there will be legal type of remedies. And, and like the crew, um, the group of scholars who are filing 
against the administration or I guess against Trump specifically for violating the emoluments clause. I'm not pronouncing that right either. Um, they have that recourse. And in that instance, the judges can make decisions about possibly arbitrating who is telling the truth because Trump is saying that he is not um, violating the clause because he's not directly taking the money. It's com- coming through his corporation. And so, you know, in those instances, the law can intervene. But in a lot of cases, it's not going to intervene because it's just it doesn't rise to that level. And it's going to be more the law of kind of not the law, but the court of public opinion. And it has been going on for a long time. But I also think that in the past, especially in 1988 and well before, there were way more gatekeepers to what information was distributed to the public. Those gates are gone. And now I can go out and I can take a video with my own cell phone and show the world that, you know, somebody, you know, the police attacked Osagi on his way over here from BART. And, you know, I don't have to you know, distribute that to NBC or PBS or anything. I can just put it up on the Internet and it can have 30 million views by next weekend. So there there are counterbalances, I think, in our society today to help um, protect against all this misinformation. At the same time, it causes more noise and it um, becomes more of a burden for each individual to filter out what is true and what is not. And so in some sense, it's up to each person to figure it out for themselves. You know, you, you've you mentioned the court of public opinion. Um, Tony, you brought up an article that you wanted to discuss, and it was about the attempts in states to limit or hold accountable individuals who protest with legal action. Right. Um, so what what how, what impact, and can you tell us a little, about, a, little bit, a little bit about that, and what impact that might have on that court of public opinion? The article that I, that, that caught my eye for obvious reasons uh, on January 19th by The Intercept, um, Republican lawmakers in five states proposed bills to criminalize uh, non, in particular nonviolent demonstrations. What is interesting to me looking at this, um, well, there's a couple of things. First, like it's in five states and they and they, they vary sort of as a direct reaction to the North Dakota uh, access pipeline uh, demonstrations like the, it came out of that. That one is just bizarre. It's um, It makes it uh, potentially uh, permissible for people to, um, you know, hit people on the highway as long as it's by accident. <laughs> to kill people. <laughs> right. To, it, you know, it makes it, yeah. I mean, to, to it not be manslaughter. To, if yeah. you run somebody over, if they're a demonstrator, as long as it's you negligently run them, as long as it's not intentional, basically. Right. And you talk about reactionary laws or like laws that are <laughs> being created. Um, this one, that one is just, it's just, it's just frightening. It's just bizarre. I have no idea, you know, whether it's going to have any sort of legs, whether it's actually going to get anywhere. Um, the ones in the one in Minnesota is a little bit more subtle in that um, there's one that also tries to address the sort of Black Lives Matter protests that recently happened where they blocked highways. But then in addition to that, there's another part of the legislation where um, if you interfere with police in some way, you the, 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 the sort of the consequences are pretty dire. Basically, it's like a $10,000 fine or like a, a minimum of one year in prison. So it's just the idea is that you, they want people just to not be involved in any way in any type of uh, form when police are doing you know their business. Um, so to me, though, the reason that this sort of jumps out at me is that 
our right to demonstrate is always framed by sort of legal parameters. In other words, these like these protests over the weekend were highly organized, um, and you know they were from like nine to three in Oakland, and then um, from three to eight p.m. in San Francisco, and you know there was a time and a place for us to to be there. Um, and that's, I think, historically, that's been the case. And I think we 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 tend to, you know, we have this sort of notion of freedom of expression. Um, and I think, you know, like people will test will test uh, their, these laws, but by and large, protests sort of are framed uh, within these parameters of of getting legal permits. Um, and when the constraints become more, I feel like people are paying more attention. Um, and it becomes more reason to protest or, or, or more reason, for, you know, to to have to participate in civil disobedience. Um, I don't know whether these laws will pass, but I think it's 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 interesting in that the constraints are just energizing, basically. Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, your concern. We all kind of been paying attention to what has grabbed our attention individually about the law. And I, I also saw that article. And, you know, I, I, I you know, I've. I've been a, a reporter for a long time, and I, I always thought, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly was just a guaranteed protection under the Constitution. Um, but then I remember about, I don't know, five, five years ago when there was a demonstration um, on a national park. And I don't remember what the demonstration was about, but they had free speech zones at that national park where anyone who wanted to demonstrate had to be in a zone, and they had basically put down tape, and you had to be inside that zone if you were going to protest what the the event was happening. And I think it was had something to do with, um, I don't know, dog walking in a national park. But they wanted to really control, and so I found that really fascinating. That the first time I ever heard of a free free speech zone of of protesting was about I don't know five years ago, and now it's pretty common. To go to um, a, a demonstration, or to ha- for there be, to be a demonstration, and there's very specific areas where you can demonstrate. In fact, at the Republican and Democratic conventions, there were free speech zones, demonstration zones. So I'm kind of curious, legally, what, what how do you think this will hold up in these states? These are state laws that are being proposed. I have what no idea. Th- I, have, you- I mean, I don't know. I have no idea personally. What is interesting to me is that it's it seems to be Republican lawmakers in each of the states that have proposed them, um, and they happen to be states that are probably more Republican than Democrat. Um, so, other than the Washington state, other than Washington, yeah, right, which yeah. probably wouldn't pass. I think that one is the least, mm-hmm. from, uh, in the, according to this article, that mm-hmm. one is they they cite that as the least likely to pass. They don't say the same for the other states. Asagi, what do you think? Well, you know, I think free speech is one of those things where um, we often don't realize how speech is often constrained and contested. Um, and so there are, you know, we spend a lot of time as um, in constitutional law, for example, con- figuring out when and where people can speak or do certain things. So, um, you know, the state is always, I should say always, but the state is often engaged in regulating speech. And, you know, with regards to this case, you know, one could make the argument that trying to um, regulate, um, um, for example, how and where and the way people protest is a form of public safety. Um, and from that perspective, you know, states and localities have as well within their purview to make sure that, it's, that uh, the public safety is maintained. 
Um, not saying I agree with that, but that's just the argument that they will put forward. So this is all to say that, you know, uh, speech is always regulated. It's, 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 it's often contested. And this is one of the things that will work its way through the courts. I really want to thank you all for coming into the studio today. Um, this was our first um, in studio at Life of the Law. Um, I hope you'll all join us next time for in studio on February 21st. If you have a question about the law in your life and you want us to try and sort it out, send us an email at connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. I'd like to thank Brittany Bottorf, an attorney and chair of Life of the Law's Advisory Board, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of Life of the Law's Advisory Board, Tony Gannon, Life of the Law's senior producer, and in the future, we'll be joined by Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel, our post-production editor. And I'd like to thank you all for coming in the studio today. Our music for this episode was from the Audio Network. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer were our engineers. Next on Life of the Law, we'll bring you a story called Radio Silence. It's an investigative report on the role of government regulation in determining what you are able to find on the radio dial. Our reporter is Ian Koss. Just because something's law doesn't make it right. I like to call us the Rosa Parks of radio, the Harriet Tubman of radio, the Malcolm X of radio. That's next on Life of the Law. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Pan Play Network of podcasts from Slate. You can find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>